You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for the Peak Church, located in Apex, North Carolina. Our church is striving to welcome all who are feeling disconnected from God. And so our hope is that over the next several minutes, you will connect with the God that we are talking about, and you'll resonate deeply with the life that this God wants for you. We hope you enjoy. Friends, good morning again to you, and welcome back for week three of our brand new sermon series that we are using to start the new year called Neighborhood Disciples. Neighborhood Disciples. How we're starting 2023 is with a very real, very genuine, very honest conversation about what it looks like to be a Christian in suburbia. In the Burb land, uh, this context that not only we here in Apex, North Carolina, we inhabit, but over 52% of Americans inhabit right here, right now. And one of the things that we're exploring uh, to start the new year is the way in which context matters, the way in which context, geography, where you learn things impacts what you learn. My little uh, take on that is where you hear always impacts what you here. The environment you're raised in, it impacts what you understand and who you understand this God to be. And so the question we're going to really wrestle with is, how has this context, this suburban sort of place in which we inhabit, how has this context helped and aided our growth, our relationship with God, our understanding of God, and how has it held us back? How has it formed us in some really healthy ways, and how has it formed us in some not-so-healthy ways. Which leads to our conversation for today. And I'm just going to be honest, today's conversation makes me uh, quite nervous. Quite, quite nervous. And the reason for which is because what I'm about to invite you to question is something that every single person listening to this sermon, ear in the room, I'm going to invite you today to question something not only that everybody in this room believes, but is willing to fiercely defend, okay? It's kind of like the first time when I first moved to the South and I shared with someone at a church potluck that I didn't like watermelon. You would have thought I kicked someone's dog. And I also don't like pets. So it was a really sort of interesting conversation I found myself in and I was really trapped there for a quick moment. But a year later, I was still at that same church and a new intern showed up. And I literally, I'm not even joking, I overheard him uh, getting to know some people from the church. And he shared, yeah, they were like, what is your favorite uh, college basketball team? He's like, oh, I don't actually like college basketball. <laughs> I was like, bro, you're on your own, man. Shoot. I thought I had a bad... But again, I'm nervous today because, again, I'm going to ask you to critically consider something that, again, it's it's been in the water of suburbia ever since you first arrived. You've drank this juice ever since the beginning. Today, I'm going to invite you to critically consider the validity of this statement. That the most important thing in life is family. Most important thing in life is family, and specifically our devotion, our commitment to our nuclear family, the people who live in the same household as us. You see, friends, one of the things that I know about suburbia is that the moment you arrive, 
this implicit and explicit voice that is shouted into your brain is you need to, A, acquire a family, and B, make that family central to anything and everything that you do. And if you don't believe me, I'll prove it to you. For those of you who traveled over the holiday break uh, last month, when you showed up, those of you who are single, you showed up, what question did everyone ask you? When are you going to get married? Is there a special someone that you're spending time with and sharing romantic time with? If you were engaged, so you're not yet married. And uh, so, so they asked you to get married, and then you did get married, but you don't have kids. What was the first question they asked you? So is there like a, a little junior coming soon, or when can we start uh, preparing all of our lives around our grandchildren, right? And then when you have one child and you show up to a holiday get-together, what do they ask you? Is there another one coming? When? I know, I know that literally you just left the hospital, but when is the next, is the next one coming, like next month? Or when is, I don't think that works mathematically, but I, I don't really care. That's, when is the heaven? If you live in an apartment or a townhome, and you move in and you go into home for holidays, what do they ask you? When are you going to buy a house? When are you going to build a house? And for those of you who already have all of those things, you know that uh, those people had nothing to talk to you about uh, over the holidays. <laughs> so you were just kind of like, well, I, I guess I, you think snow's going to come? I don't, I don't know. I, 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 let's just go eat. Whatever. Family. It's not only the expectation here. It's the whole daggum goal, right? Right? And what's fascinating about that, what's fascinating about that is as I share that, I can hear, like, in your cells, you just sort of saying, what, what's wrong with that? There's nothing wrong with anything he just said. What's so bad about that? And the answer is nothing and everything all at the same time. You see, uh, one of the, uh, my favorite church theologians, one who lived in the third century, he did a lot for who and how we understand the person of Jesus, uh, was a theologian named Augustine. And Augustine had a really interesting take on sin. So actions that we do, behavior we participate in that's offensive to God, that hurts our relationship with God and hurts our relationship with other people. He says this about sin. He said, contrary to what you've been taught in a lot of uh, religious spaces, contrary to what you heard maybe a lot growing up, Sin actually isn't doing something bad. It's misusing something good. Sin is any time we misuse, we become obsessed with, we over sort of use something good. We use it for not its intended purpose. I call this the Q-tip principle because the only reason, the only way in which I use Q-tips is precisely the way in which they tell me not to use when it comes to family when it comes to family there's this temptation in suburbia to make everything about family all of your time all your devotion all your commitment is all about your family and the tricky part about that is if you do that too much pretty soon nothing else matters no one else can matter. You see, friends, when the question, 
the question that governs so much of your life, so much of what you do, so much of how you spend your time, energy, attention. If the central question that governs and rules and drives your life is what is best for my family, you know what question's never being asked? What might be best for my faith? Sure, like I know my kids want this, and I know, know we we talked about doing this, but like I wonder what God wants from my life. I wonder what Jesus would say to me about the direction of my life. If this is the only question you ask of your life, God ain't got no place in it. And furthermore, it doesn't align with the way in which Jesus spoke about family. What Jesus taught about family. Who makes up family? And the purpose of family. So, let's dig in. If you have your Bibles with you or your smart devices and you want to follow along, go ahead and return back to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12 is where we're going to be camped out here today. Our scripture passage is a, a fascinating one because we sort of plopped down right in the middle of one of Jesus' sermons. So we don't necessarily know exactly all the things that he's teaching about. We have a little bit of an inkling, but he's teaching. He's in the midst of a sermon. He's right in the middle of a public speaking engagement, kind of like I am right now. And then someone from the crowd goes, hey, psst, psst, Jesus. I'm so sorry to interrupt. I know you were really like bringing that point home. Mm, so sorry, uh, but your mom and your brothers are here and they want to speak to you. Which I can almost imagine Jesus just being like, Mom, I'm trying to offer people salvation right now. Oh, it's so embarrassing. And then he says something really fascinating about family. His response is this. He says this. He says, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? He stretched out his hand towards his disciples and said, look, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of my father who's in heaven, that's my brother, sister, or mother. Which if I was the messenger and Jesus said that, I'd be like, oh, I'm not saying that to her. <laughs> she looked mad. She'll hit me. She won't hit the Son of God. You can tell her that. And I'm sure Jesus went and spoke to them eventually. But I don't want us to miss the crucial, the critical point that Jesus is making here as it relates to family. You see, what Jesus is doing here right out of the gate is he's showing us, he is teaching us that family is not just reserved for those you are biologically connected to. And let's be very real here for a quick moment. For some of you, that's really, really good news. Some of you, you come into spaces like this, and let's be honest, it's, it's hard for you because you watch nuclear families sort of walk around and whatever, and it makes you think about the fact that because of your traumatic experiences, the exclusion you went through, the pain, the trauma, you don't have that. So it's good news that Jesus doesn't narrowly define family to only those you are biologically connected to. And so instead, what he does is he offers us a very different definition, a very diff different definition as to what family is and should be. And so how he does that is first and foremost, he gives us the who. Who? is your family. Jesus is clear. That can be anybody. Anybody. 
These people can be related to you. These people can be not related to you. They can live in your home. They can not live in your home. These could be people who are family or people who are friends. This could be anybody, anybody who does the second thing. This is when he defines what is family for? What's it about? Why does it exist? Family is the community that you surround yourself with to stay on mission. It's the people that you consistently surround yourself with because they're helping you become the person you want to be. They're helping the world become the best version of itself. They're helping you stay on mission, stay on task, stay focused on the future where you wish to arrive. And it becomes incredibly clear when you place that definition over top of our suburban context why Jesus taught this, why Jesus preached this. It's because Jesus knew. Jesus knew how incredibly tempting it would be to make your immediate family, just the people that you're immediately around all the time, your central focus, your central commitment, the only thing you care about. Francis Chan said that the nuclear family is the greatest idol in all of Christian suburbia. Mike and Sally Breen, and they wrote a book uh, called Families on Mission. They, they capture it perfectly, and they say the reason for which is because almost always, almost every single suburban Christian out there falls into one of two traps. You ready for them? One of two traps. The first trap is this. The first trap is you go about life in such a way where it's either or. It's either or. We're either going to be about faith and our mission, or we're going to be about family. Okay, so let's just make it super practical, super practical. What does this look like? This looks like the family that when they look at their schedule and they look at their week and they're on their iCal or their Google Calendar and they look at different things, whenever there is a familial event that is in conflict with something faith-related, church-related, mission-related, what do they do? They do the family thing. We can be real here for a minute. I've been a Christian in suburbia for 34 years. Like, I know a little something about this context. And very rarely do I watch someone, when presented with a conflict, of like, oh, there's a church thing or a faith thing or a service opportunity, or there's this get-together. Very rarely do we opt for this one rather than that one. And so the problem with that is that often what it can result in is what I like to call a seasonal faith. A seasonal faith. So... You become so busy as a family, you become so preoccupied and so overextended with all the things that you're running around to, and then eventually what happens? Your soul begins to starve, your spirit begins to get really, really hungry, and so what you do is you say, okay, we're going to correct this around Christmas time, we're going to start again, we're going to sort of reset, we're going to recharge this thing, or around New Year time, we're going to sort of plug back in, we're going to find places to practice our faith and get back on mission with being the people we want to be, and then what happens? The calendar gets booked up again. And then in eight to nine months, you're having the same exact conversation over and over and over again. Maybe that's not you. Maybe you're like, no, 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 like that's not necessarily uh, me. That's not the way it works. I don't fall into that trap. Then most of the rest of us fall into trap number two, which is not family or mission. It's family and mission. These are those of us here in this room who try desperately to do both, to do all, 
right? So very practically, again, what this looks like is when you're looking at your Google Cal, you're looking at your iCalendar, you're looking at the things, and there's a conflict between something you wanted to do for your missional purpose, for, for the sake of your faith, for the sake of your relationship with God, and there's a sort of familial sort of thing going on. What do you do? You try to do both, right? You divide and conquer. Okay, you do the church thing and be there, and then you tell me about it, and then we have a spiritual moment, and then I'll make sure that we show up to this thing so people don't think weirdly of us. Okay, great, break! Or you say, okay, we're just going to go to this thing and be late to this thing. Go to this thing and then sort of uh, apologize on the backside to make sure that they know that we're still in it. We're still committed to it. We're going to do everything we can to be fully committed to all of our family things and our God. And the result almost always is exhaustion. It's not sustainable. You find yourself burnt out completely not present in either. And oftentimes what I watch happen with this is I'll also watch people who try that, they try that sort of rhythm, they try that sort of relationship. Oftentimes it'll not only lead to exhaustion, it'll lead to resentment. They'll begin to resent the God, not the lifestyle, that's making them feel this way. And so, friends, this is precisely why Jesus, here in Matthew chapter 12, is teaching us that the only possibility, the only very real scenario out there is instead of being a family that's like family or mission, family or faith, or family and faith, we're going to try to do all the things all the time, Jesus says the only real scenario, the only real alternative is to be a family on mission, a family on mission, a family that's looking to integrate their missional identity into everything they do. What this looks like is it looks like a family that starts with the mission. They pin down, who do we want to be? What do we want to be about? What type of legacy do we want to leave on this earth? And then they allow that mission to dictate every familial decision that they do. The mission dictates where they go, where they live, what jobs they take, how they spend their money, how they spend their time, what activities they do versus don't do, what relationships they keep, and which ones do they set firm, fast boundaries around. The mission drives the family, not the other way around. And when you begin to look at this and you begin to grapple with the implications of this, it becomes incredibly clear why more families don't do this. It's because why? There's a cost. There's a cost. Families who do this, families who say, you know what, we're not going to try to pick and choose. We're not going to try to do all the things. We're going to try to integrate. Those families are those who were willing to do two things. Number one, they were families who were willing to narrow their focus, narrow their purpose. So one more time, this is where I want to make a plug for these family mission statement manuals. For those of you who are, this is your first time here or you weren't here the last several weeks at the lobby, we've been handing these out because what they are are how-to manuals for you and your family to figure out the very answer to this question. Who is it that we're trying to be? What actually is most important to us? So again, if that's not your thing, if mission statements and stuff like that are not your thing, that's fine. But you do need to figure out your why you exist. Otherwise, you reach the end of your life and realize that you just sort of followed the current. You were just sort of tossed around to and fro by whatever events were happening around you. 
never actually in control of where you ended up. So number one, families on mission, they narrow their purpose. And the other thing they do is they expand. So they narrow and they also expand their circle. They expand their family to become what T-Mobile called Framly. Remember that? It's a horrible promo. It failed miserably, but it gave every pastor the uh, sermon illustration that we're now using for 10 to 15 years. You need family. You need people who are biologically and also not biologically connected to you who you can help them stay on mission, and they can help you be on mission. Maybe for you, this is your community of friends. Maybe for you, this is your small group. Here's our family uh, right here at a backyard cookout this past summer. I'm not entirely sure why all the boys have their shirts off. I think my son was the one that led the charge. He's in the bottom right-hand corner looking devilishly at everyone. But this is our family. And friends, one of the things that I just want to always make a point of pointing out is that while there is always a cost to living the way in which Jesus calls us to live, there is also so much more to gain. We don't do a good enough, I, told, I said this last week, we don't do a good enough job pointing out that Jesus, when he recommends things to us, when he gives us an alternate version of family, a definition of family, it's not wor- it can't be worse than the version you already have. It has to be better. It would make no sense if Jesus was walking around offering you a worse version of what you currently had. It would be like going to the airport and someone walking up to you and saying, hey, I know you guys are booked on Delta, but would you like to fly Southwest? We, I think we have tickets. We're not entirely sure, and uh, we're not sure when you'll fly out or get home, but that's kind of the fun. We're all about fun. With Jesus, we always have to, it always, deep down, even if it's not apparent on the surface, deep down, we have to gain more than we're losing. And friends, this version of family that he's calling for, it's the same thing. You will gain far more than you will stand to lose. For example, one of the things that I know firsthand that this, one of the gains that you receive as a result of adopting this version of family, this definition of family, one that narrows their focus, one that expands it to the people that are also wanting the same thing, they want to arrive in the same place. One of the things that this offers you, one of the gains that you receive is a cure for holiness. You get a remedy for holiness, one of the biggest epidemics hitting suburbia right now. This is the most lonely time in human history. And they studied this. They started digging into this. Sociologists started digging into this. Like, why is it so pervasive that so many people are lonely? And, and also, where in their life are, there, are they lonely? And they found this. They found that in someone's life, this is actually the points of your life where most people are the loneliest. Most people are at their loneliest in their 20s. So school ends, you don't have that built-in social fab work, uh, network anymore, and so you have to go and make friends and make community and find it. So that makes sense to me. The 80s also makes sense to me. You're losing people. You're not surrounded by the same community and friends that you used to have. And so it makes sense to me that you would be lonely there. So in your 40s, I had to sort of think about it for a bit, and I kept reading the article, and they were saying it's incredibly clear why people in their 40s and even in their early 50s also are experiencing the highest level of loneliness in their life. And the reason for which is because they've spent the last 20 years only focusing on their immediate family, and they lost all their friends. They found that the average U.S. adult, starting at age 25, starts losing friends 
at a rapid rate until they get to their 40s, their 50s, and they realize, good gracious, I don't got nobody. And so you need friends. You need friends. I don't, I'm, this is a big thing for me. Married couples, you need friends outside of your marriage. This is one of my biggest things I harp with our premarital couples because almost always premarital couples, I'm like, hey, tell me about your friend life. And sometimes they'll be like, I don't have any friends. All I have is him right here. We love each other. We're soulmates. We satisfy every need and desire. I get very, very worried and anxious for them. And I've also been doing this job long enough where I've sat with folks for whom they've been married for 15 20 years, and they're experiencing strife, they're experiencing unhealth. And one of the questions I always ask them, it always seems like it's coming out of left field, but I always ask them and say, tell me, like, what kind of support do you have outside of your marriage? What kind of friendships do you have? And you could almost draw a linear line of those who are struggling and those who are incredibly lonely outside of their marriage. And friends, that's because married couples, you need to hear me, or if you're in a committed relationship, you need to hear me. It's because there is no single person on this planet who can fulfill every single one of your emotional and relational needs. I don't care how wonderful and beautiful they are. There's no single person. People who go into marriage that way, what they end up doing is they end up sucking that other person dry, and then they end up hating them for not being everything they expected them and needing them to be. But if you're willing to change your definition of family, you might find a cure for loneliness. You might find a remedy for those feelings of isolation. Another thing you'll gain, another thing you'll find uh, if you adopt this version of family, this definition of family, is not only a cure for loneliness, but a cure for our selfishness. A cure for our selfishness. Notice that the great commandment does not say, now go and love thy family. What does it say? Go and love thy neighbor. You know who you can't love? You know who you can't pay attention to? You know who you have no idea if they're suffering or not? If you only love the people in your household? Your neighbor. If we, if our families, our nuclear families, are not helping but obstructing our ability to love our neighbor... Bro, we're doing it wrong. We're doing it wildly wrong. This story, uh, this, this is a real story. This happened a couple of months ago. A couple of months ago, my family, we were in the car. We were driving somewhere. I don't even remember where we were going. We were on our way to something. We, had a, we were overcommitted, overextended. And so we're bouncing around. We're sweaty. We're stressed. We're getting in the car. We're trying to get to this place. And so while we're going, we come to this red light. And we come to this red light, there's a group of people who are stationed at every corner of the red light. And they're holding up these signs because they're uh, trying to, they're using a GoFundMe. They're trying to raise money for a kid at their school who has cancer. And I never saw it. I was so busy, so preoccupied, so stressed out, so focused on, oh, good Lord, we're going to be late. We're running late. My ETA says we're going to be late. I didn't even, I didn't even see it. You know who saw it? Our kids. 
who just now have the ability to read, which is both a blessing and a curse. But they read the sign, and they were like, Daddy, Daddy, you got to pull over. Daddy, we got to help. Daddy, we got to do something. And had they not spoken up, all of my family commitments, my family responsibilities, my family activities would have stopped me from helping my neighbor. So this version of family that Jesus is talking about is not just for you. It's for the world. And thirdly and finally, friends, one of the things that you will gain if you leave here today and you say, you know what, we're going to try it. We're going to try Jesus' take on family. We're going to try his version of family for a little bit, just sort of see how it goes. One of the things that you will also gain if you dare to trust him, you dare to give it a shot, is you'll find a cure for your own spiritual malformation. Now, those are big words. You'll find a cure for your own spiritual malformation. You see, friends, the scary part about only caring for, only being committed to a very small number of people that just so happen to be the people right around you in the same home, the problem with that is if that's the only people that you're exposed to, those are the only people that you care about, it's going to form you. It's going to shape you. It's going to create in you a very specific, a very narrow, a very small version of God. A study was done recently, and they found that most U.S. adults, 80%, 80% of U.S. adults never leave a 100-mile radius their entire lives. You want to know why? You want to know what their answer was? Family. Right? By the way, this is my wife's story. She's literally never left this area before. When we got married, I moved her from Apex up to Durham uh, to finish grad school. She cried the whole drive there. I was like, sweetheart, we can go back for dinner. Like, literally, we can turn right back around and go right back over there for a meal. I know, but it's <laughs> so far. A hundred miles. You do the math, that's actually 30,000 square miles. And that might seem like a lot to you. That might seem like a lot. That might seem like, man, that's, actually, that's a lot of ground, you know. Like, that's a lot. But then you put it on top on a global scale. And you find that 30,000 square miles don't even hold a candle to the 57 million square miles of land that covers the earth. In other words, 80%, most people out there have created an entire worldview after only seeing 0.05% of the entire picture. So close here. How could that not form you spiritually? How could that not impact and influence you and I spiritually? To only be exposed to the same places, the same people, the same opinions, the same worldviews, how could that not create a very specific, a very narrow imagination as to who God is. And to think 
There are so many Christians out there in the world who are so unbelievably black and white certain about every theological view that they hold. It's baffling to me. It's kind of like this, kind of like this. Check out this picture. Right now, you are looking at 0.05% of a picture. It's actually a little bit more than that because when I did 0.05, it was so tiny, I was like, ain't nobody going to get nothing. So this is 0.05% of a picture. Anybody want to take a guess as to what this is a picture of? Come on, don't be shy. Raise hands. Let's do it together. Somebody said Mona Lisa in the first service. What was the other guess? Like a marshmallow? Anybody got a guess? Come on, venture a guess. Somebody venture a guess. Mindy. A box of cereal. You said cereal wheat. What did you say? Frosted wheats? Yeah, okay, okay. Mindy, are you willing to bet your life on that guess? You're not. Good. Go and show it. It's not me, by the way. So, Mindy's not alone. No one's taking that bet, right? Nobody. On principle, none of us are willing to bet our lives, stake our lives on such little information on on, after only seeing 0.05% of the entire picture. And yet... We do this with our faith all the time. When it comes to our faith, we are willing to be so quick to settle for so, so little. Thank you for listening to the Peak Podcast. Make sure you subscribe wherever podcasts can be found. For more information on how to get connected with our church, please visit us at thepeakchurch.org.